On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in, we're talking about the Commonwealth Games. They are coming to council next week to make their full pitch. Is it going to happen? Do we want it to happen? There are now people on both sides beginning to take their positions and push for a yes or a no answer. We'll talk about that with a former mayor of the city. Obesity. Big issue in this country. Up to 9 million Canadians are listed as obese. Is it time to redefine obesity and redefine the treatment of that? Dinosaurs apparently had cancer. Some McMaster researchers have discovered this one. They had, there was a dinosaur found in Alberta, well, the bones anyway, that had an osteosarcoma. What does this mean? Because it's got to mean something. And streaming. The streaming companies are about to find a new way to separate you from your money. Let us explain. Stick around and find out how. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show for this hump day. Yes, it comes early this week on a shortened week. Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson this week. It's also, you know what today is? It's August 5th, which means today is National Underwear Day. Yes, applause for National Underwear Day. Hope everyone is wearing some of whatever choice, whatever kind you choose. It's always disconcerting here doing a show, thinking that the audience is not wearing underwear. Uh, Glad you are along on such an auspicious occasion. We are going to find out next week what the committee, what the group that is trying to bring the Commonwealth Games to Hamilton in 2026, what their plan is going to look like. It's been pretty quiet until now. I expect, though, that things are going to change relatively quickly once we get some very specific details. Because on the one hand, you've got some of the city's leading businessmen, people who are important contributors to this city who are involved in this, or the Chamber of Commerce, as you heard yesterday, supporting the idea of a bid. On the other hand, you have petitions starting up from people saying, don't do this, we don't want this. And the idea, the specter that this city is $60 million of operating funding in the hole already and has a $3 billion infrastructure deficit. What should we be doing with Commonwealth Games? Larry Deany, of course, is a former mayor of the city of Hamilton. He sat around, he didn't sit around the council table necessarily to discuss the Commonwealth Games, but he sat around for a lot of difficult discussions. He joins us now. Mr. Mayor, thanks for doing this today. Well, in fact, even the Commonwealth Games, uh, I was both a councillor and mayor when we... Well, there you the, go. Yeah, so I do have some experience with this. I think um, this is one of those topics that normally I think people would be really fired up about. And I think maybe that summertime and COVID and everything else has maybe dulled our senses a little bit. Um because as I say, I would think normally if you're talking about an event like this that could potentially cost the city millions or even tens of millions of dollars, I, I would have expected a whole lot more discussion slash argument about this so far. Yeah, well, COVID has turned everything upside down and um, refocused uh, priorities uh, on um, on healthcare, appropriately so. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, we need to look beyond COVID. COVID will uh, disappear at some point. Uh, vaccines will be found. Uh, uh, hopefully, uh, we will get out of uh, these, uh, these doldrums. Uh, and uh, the city still needs to continue and activities still need to be planned for. So it's, it's a, a deserving uh, conversation to have, that's for sure. Is it a case that 
part of what's made this maybe fly under the radar besides COVID is that up until now, there has been no specific or even remotely specific dollar figure attached to this. Just really, really vague estimates and assurances that the figures that we may guess at are not right. When we get something close to a real number, does that change the discussion? Well, it certainly focuses it uh, much more. Once you know you know what the Hamilton contribution is, uh, then people have a real number to talk about. But uh, you've got to balance that out with uh, what other levels of government uh, will contribute and what the benefits to the city are. So, you know, you can look at this, as some people are doing right now as they're preparing their petitions and so on, as an expense of money that could be spent in other ways, uh, or you could look at it as an investment that will garner um, uh, and accrue benefits to the community as well, not only in terms of dollars invested in the community, but also the infrastructure, and you talked about some of the deficit. Uh, some of it is in the um, old uh, uh, facilities that we have and, and uh, or facilities we do not have and may uh, be regenerated uh, as part of this endeavor. So, you know, once you have everything, you, you know what the costs are going to be, you know what the benefits are going to be, and then you can discuss that not in the abstract, uh, but you can discuss the specifics which I think will, will will be healthy. And you mentioned, Larry, that, I mean, it is, this has been framed almost exclusively to, a little bit to my surprise, this has been framed almost exclusively as an infrastructure project. We've heard almost nothing about the games or the sporting part of this at all. And and I, I believe that's intentional. I believe that probably a lot of people would balk at the idea of just paying for a massive party but that maybe some people would be okay with money going towards housing or, as you say, new infrastructure projects or something. Right. So, so think about the past games that we have hosted um, in, uh, in the municipality, uh, whether uh, they be, you know, the original Commonwealth Games uh, in 1930 uh, that uh, gave us the, uh, the Civic Stadium, for example, um, and some other amenities as well. Uh, um, and what would we have done as a city without that contribution then? Or the more recent games that gave us the new stadium that we've got now uh, that was mostly paid for by uh, provincial dollars and federal dollars with some pretty healthy Hamilton contribution as well. But that previous stadium served us for many, many decades, and this one will serve us for many, many decades uh, more. And so some people would, um, I think, uh, support uh, the expenditure of money, if indeed there's a community benefit that not only is for the duration of the games, but for decades um, uh, to come as well. Now, there are also those people who say, no, don't spend money on games. And we've seen that. I mean, you go to social media and people are talking about it right now. Uh, it's the old bread, not circuses um, uh, narrative that uh, some people want to talk about, you know, especially... In COVID, we've got people suffering. Let's spend money uh, uh, to alleviate some of that suffering instead of spending it on games, which in the grand scheme of things uh, may not be as important. Uh, I, my, you know, my, my bias, and let me state it right up front, is that we need to have a balanced uh, program for our citizens. Uh, yes, of course, you need to spend money on the needs that people have. But you also need to set some money aside for the dreams, for the inspiration, for the infrastructure benefits that accrue over decades 
uh, that people have. And, and, and then you, have, you need to find, you know, the right balance to, to sort of go forward with something that's fiscally responsible, but community beneficial as well. And, and you know what, that, that is, I love that idea. I mean, I think that's a, I think that's a really good way to look at this, that we don't want to be only about the very basics. There, there has to be something that, whether you want to call it dreams or whatever else, I think that's very healthy. Here's my concern though, Larry, and the, the group, and we'll hear more about this next week, I'm told, but the, the position has been, this is an economic stimulus idea and much of the money, if not most of the money is going to come from private sector. The city is going to be on the hook for very little. That is the position that we've been hearing so far. My concern is no games, Commonwealth, Olympic, Pan Am, whatever. They never come in on budget. They just never come in on budget. And even if we look at this and say, all right, um, we can get these games right now for not very much city money. What happens if it runs tens of millions of dollars over? Who then ends up picking up the bill? And inevitably, it seems to be the city. Well, so uh, first of all, I, I and, and I know some of the, uh, the players that are behind um, this endeavor, and they're responsible people, uh, they're bright people, they're successful people, and they're people who have uh, some community spirit as well uh, and have shown that they can put money on the table uh, for altruistic reasons, not just for a return on investment. Uh, but I will believe it when I see it that the city will be in for, for very little money uh, because the city always um, is is a player. And, um, you know, my experience in, in the past, whether it be with the with the Commonwealth Games bids uh, themselves or, or, you know, watching the Pan Am uh, lately, uh, the city is on hook uh, for, for some fairly significant dollars. And so I don't think we, we should follow that narrative and believe it because, you know, it's the old adage, if it's too good to be true, it probably isn't true. But if you make an investment and there's a return on that investment that accrues benefits over decades, then it's an expenditure worth having. And I think most people uh, will, will probably, most Hamiltonians will probably see it that way. Uh, and and uh, that's where, you know, our city uh, fathers and, and mothers and, and uh, uh, others in administration and the public sector uh, that's fronting uh, this bid uh, need to be very transparent. And here's what it's going to cost. Uh, here's what the projections are. Uh, are they real projections? And so you, you've got to have some fiscally knowledgeable people to make those assessments and uh, and so that we can we can assess things from a realistic perspective as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, fooling ourselves into believing that uh, the situation is going to be better than it actually might turn out to be. And by the way, uh, governments also build in contingency plans. If things should go, um, you know, contrary to the way that it's initially planned. And that all is all part of the budget that should be transparent as well. Yeah. And, and I, I agree. Like I, when, when this comes forward, there has to, in my mind, there has to be an, ad- that has to be addressed. If this thing runs over, if suddenly there's a terror attack somewhere in the world and our security costs go up by double or whatever else, like where is this money coming from? That has to be there. Cause if, if this plan, and I don't know what it looks like right now, Larry, and I don't think anyone does except those in the committee. If this is just, here's what it's going to cost. And we haven't built in any extra that becomes to me, a bit of a red flag. We only have a minute left here. Um, 
leaving aside whatever benefits might come, what infrastructure, whatever else, we can see that there could be benefits to this. Honestly, can you in 2020, considering the city's financial position right now, could you see a majority of councillors voting to go ahead and host the, and pay for and host the Commonwealth Games? Well, I think it's going to be a robust debate. And of course, our fiscal situation makes things a little more difficult. But the other side of that coin is that this is precisely why we need to bring activities and economic stimulus to the community. And if you spend, you know, three or four or five billion dollars, whatever the amount might be, that, that is an economic shot in the arm that most communities would uh, would love to have. And so it's precisely because we may be facing some economic challenges that you want to do things that will shake that up and 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 uh, bring benefits uh, to the community. The question for councillors will be this. Is it a realistic plan? Is it an affordable plan? Are the benefits real benefits or are they pretend benefits? Uh, and what does the general public feel? I mean, if you go online right now or on social media, all you're hearing from are some of the naysayers, some of whom are bright, they can articulate their perspective very well, and they can make themselves seem much bigger in terms of a voice than, uh, than, uh, than, than they actually might be. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, what is the silent majority saying? And uh, if I were a counselor, I'd be reaching out to people. You know, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, you know, I'm just leading the golf course. Uh, we just played 18 holes. I'm part of a, of a league that plays every Wednesday. And uh, I don't know the other players all that well uh, that, that I play with every, every week. And uh, when I moved away, uh, they're all sitting there enjoying the, the 19th hole right now. Um, the, uh, when I moved away, I said, you know, I'm doing a little interview on the Commonwealth Games. What do you folks say? There were, there were, there were, um, uh, there were uh, four other people uh, listening to this conversation. And three out of the four said, go for it. One was a very strong no. Uh, he's a, a businessman, by the way, originally from Toronto, but now living in Hamilton. Uh, another is a businessman who said yes. Another is a school teacher who said yes. And another is a retired uh, millwright who said yes. So, I mean, that's unscientific, very small poll, but very random. And I was surprised to see that level of support. Uh, listen, Larry Diani, always appreciate the time. And by the way, congratulations on the 68 that you shot today. I know you didn't want to brag about it, but uh, that was an outstanding <laughs> uh, score. for. Uh, <laughs> that was the first <laughs> nine. <laughs> former Mayor Larry Diani, thanks for the time today. Appreciate it as always. Okay, Scott, take care. Uh, and, you know, like, just before we go to news here, um, Larry just said something there that was so important and it has to always be remembered. Social media, while it's loud, is not a great arbiter. Now, I'm not arguing that because of any reason that we should lean one way or the other. I want to hear this debate about Commonwealth Games. But if you simply, if you're a counselor and you simply follow the winds of social media, because there's a few people that speak very loudly and have a bunch of followers, a terrible way to govern. It's a terrible way to govern. Social media is very loud, but it is not always representative. And yet there are counselors and there are other politicians who seemingly walk in fear of what social media would say. It's a terrible way to govern. I agree with Larry on that point 100%. Don't just follow what the social media people say. Talk to actual people and listen to the debate and make a wise decision. And hopefully they will. And we'll be talking a lot more about this because this will be a decision that will have huge impact on the city financially and otherwise one way or another.
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. There is a uh, a new McMaster study out about obesity that is suggesting that we need to change how we look at obesity, diagnose obesity, deal with obesity. Um, it, we need to rethink, the study says, how we approach this issue, which is a widespread issue. I mean, there are m- millions of people in this country who are dealing with this. Uh, and it's an important one as well, because the health problems that come with it, well, we all know about that, and we'll get into it a little bit. Dr. Sean Wharton is with the Wharton Medical Clinic. He is the assistant clinical professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster. He joins us now. He's the author of the study. Dr. Wharton, thanks for doing this today. Absolutely. It's good to be here. So when we talk about re-def- well, re-looking at this, looking at this in a different way, what does that mean in practical terms? Well, really what we want to do is we've always attached to this blame and shame and we've pointed fingers at people and, and said that if you could just be more compliant and use more willpower, you would get better to stay on the diet longer. This isn't rocket science. And that's the wrong way to actually look at this. Just stating to them, eat less and exercise more is the wrong statement. We should really be looking at the at compassion and empathy. We should be looking at the biological forces and the physiology that dictates this medical condition because we know that there are treatments that we can do. We can, we can, we, we can implement treatments if we look at the biology and the physiology, and that's what we know now. This is such a charged discussion point. I remember a few years ago, and you may as well, that um, Sports Illustrated uh, featured a plus-size model in their swimsuit edition. I don't usually talk about Sports Illustrated swimsuit with doctors on the air, but we're doing that today. Um, And this led to a heated discussion about whether putting this model in this position was glorifying obesity. And there was pushback against any comments Um, people were saying, well, you're body shaming or you're fat shaming or whatever else. But the point is, it's very difficult. Now, as a doctor, perhaps you can do it, but it's very difficult for, for people to have a discussion around this because it is so personal for so many people and people don't want to hear you're fat. Right. It's personal. It's charged. There's a lot of biases. But what we do know is that we're trying to focus not just on the BMI or the body size, We're trying to focus on if somebody has an impaired health. If your fat cells impair your health, it causes fatty liver or elevated blood sugars, um, uh, then that is, those are fat cells that we need to decrease. We need to, to look at that as an obesity problem and we need to work on treatment options. If you have elevated weight or you're, or you're bigger and you're perfectly fine and you're healthy and there's no um, metabolic conditions, the blood work is great you feel great, then you are great. There's no other issue. There's no other point here besides that. That person is fine. They should not be shamed. And what we know is that certain people can take the energy and put it into the peripheral cells. They can put it into um, uh, peripheral fat cells, which is in the thighs and in the, and in the hips. And African-American women tend to do that up until a BMI of 32. Now, white men and indigenous people and also South Asians tend to put that energy and fat cells into the central area and that causes metabolic problems. So we know that there's different ways of looking at weight for different people and individuals are important, but we shouldn't shame people who are healthy. 
fair enough. I mean, look, it's, it's, it's not appropriate to be shaming people for whatever, but I'm wondering when I listen to this, are we, are what we doing then simply redefining what obesity is, changing the definition? Yeah, well, changing the definition helps us to understand what the biology is. The biology is that fat cells that are toxic cause a problem. Fat cells that aren't toxic don't cause a problem. So define obesity as an impairment of health. Let's stop looking at at the at at the um, uh, the outside, the physical, the body size, and start looking at who people are and how they feel and what their emotions are and what their what their actual health is. And that is the 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 important part. But we also know that people who are in an unhealthy position have impaired health. We have treatment options that do not include this idea of just going on a simple diet and going to to exercise. We know that we have biological and physiological ways of treating weight and keeping it down. Is This sounds a little bit, though, like what we're doing is merely moving the goalposts because people don't want to hear that they are obese, and so we'll tell them something that they don't, that they want to hear rather than hearing that. Am I wrong? No. Uh, oh, yeah, you are. Uh, sorry, what I okay. meant by this is, is that, no, that is not the right way to, to, uh, to actually look at it. We're not moving the goalposts. The goalposts have always been the same. If you're a healthy big person, you're a healthy big person. If you're an unhealthy person with fat cells in the belly that are, and you have a BMI of 27, which in, uh, which in many cases is not, is not a major challenge when people look at it. But, but if you do have fat cells that are causing toxicity, then that needs to be treated. So we're being very clear, and it's always been the exact same. Big, healthy people are big and healthy. Other unhealthy people are unhealthy. And if the fat cells are causing that, we need to treat these fat cells in an appropriate way. We need to get them down. We need to decrease them. And we need to take care of that toxicity. So it's not shifting any of the goalposts. It's it's being clear about what is health and what isn't health. I think it's probably news to a lot of people listening. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the only one. But that there are parts of the body where you can be heavy and that not be a health problem. Again, if it's, is it only if it's around your midsection, then if you have a heavy lower half or whatever else, there are ways that you can be very healthy and still be what we would, or have previously considered obese that you could actually be okay. Absolutely. Without a doubt, there's not even a question there. The question is clear that that, that central adiposity are the toxic cells that cause diabetes, obese, and, and metabolic conditions. Coronary artery d- disease, we know that this, this inflammation goes to all of the different areas, to the lungs, and that's why COVID-19 is uh, so much um, higher in people who have central fat. The people who have peripheral fat do not develop a metabolic um, con- 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 condition. That does not turn into a diabetes risk. It can turn into risk of their knees being at, at trouble, um, uh, so that so the mechanical risk can also be there. But that's also dependent on on the ability for them to actually carry that um, weight. So that's important, but that's not the most important component of these guidelines. These guidelines are telling people who are struggling with elevated weight that there is effective treatment out there that can help them to bring the weight down and bring it down over the long term. And it's not simplistically looking at diet and exercise. It's looking at the biological forces. And there's three main treatments that we can use to get weight down and keep it down. Surgical intervention is one where, where it works very well. 
and it changes the neurochemistry within the brain and all of all of the hormones. The the use of a pharmacotherapy or medication also helps to divert the hormone changes that we see when someone tries to lose weight and try to keep it off and and the hormones say, I want to eat, eat, and then cognitive behavioral therapy or psychological intervention. So those three pillars can help to keep the weight down and they're very effective. Now you're talking just so I'm clear as well, because you're talking about people who would come to you saying now, I want to lose weight, but I may be discouraged because of what I've done in the past or I've, I've been... Uh, unsuccessful before because um, you're not necessarily talking about everybody then who is heavy has to lose weight. Correct. Okay. That's right. So if people who need the intervention of weight management, if if weight is causing a problem for you, a mechanical problem or a metabolic problem, it's impairing health, then you need a treatment. And that's what I do. And that's what all of our, uh, the, the teams do who are working in this field. We have effective treatment. Those three effective treatments are, are what we use to be able to get somebody's weight down and keep it down over the longer term. Do you think most doctors agree with this or understand this? Because I, you, you don't hear this very often. You would hear people say, oh, you know what? You're X number of pounds. You need to lose some weight. I, I never hear the nuance. Right. And I think that that's because of bias. So doctors live in the same world that everybody else does. And we all have these biases. And these biases are things like you look at somebody and say, you've got elevated weight, you must not have enough willpower, you, your, your motivation, your compliance must be poor. Instead of, uh, and, and that is a bias. Now, I can, we can't get rid of people's biases. We all have it. But we don't need to act on it. How do you not act on your bias? You, you not act on your bias by using biology and physiology and medical science to be able to treat a medical condition. So you can say, I may have this bias, but you know what? I know the medicine behind this and the biology behind it, and I know that I can treat this person's elevated weight. This is a good thing. If someone came into the clinic and was... Uh, again, I don't even, I, I don't want to be insulting, but uh, what, what normally we would consider, most people consider heavy. All right. So someone comes in and they would be a larger person. It, does the, does it ever happen that the doctor would say to them, you know what? No, you don't need to lose weight. Just keep your weight as it is. Or is it usually even so a better response or a better thing to, to drop some weight, to be closer to, you know what I'm getting at? Like, is, is, is right. it a, is it always a suggestion is, to lose weight? If somebody's healthy, and they've, they've come into your clinic for other reasons, there is no reason for you to tell that person to lose weight. So they're in there for their annual checkup, their blood pressure is great, their cholesterol is terrific, their blood sugars are normal, there's no history of any medical problems within their family associated with, um, with a elevated weight. You tell them, terrific, you're doing a great job, it was really nice seeing you, and, um, and gaining more weight like anybody else would be, could be a challenge. As you go up in weight, um, things can go poorly for you. So trying to eat healthy and be active is a healthy thing for you. But do you need to lose weight? No, you don't need to lose weight, you need to maintain it, which takes a lot of work, a lot of work to maintain weight. So I think that that's important. But if that person had disease connected to them, if their blood sugars were going up, if they were in the diabetes range, if their blood pressure was, was, was poor, that's when the physician starts to talk about weight may be a concern here. 
I know treatment options that are effective for you beyond diet and exercise. Would you like to discuss those? That's an appropriate, compassionate, empathic discussion with a patient and a physician. Hmm. There are, um, and I've, you know, I've seen some of them, I've come across them. There are right now, uh, this is obviously an area that is of great fascination to people because there's a bunch of TV shows right now that you can tune into. And whether it's the bariatric surgery or whether it's just people losing weight, it always starts with people who would be, I would describe as very obese. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering, do, do these, do these exposures, do they help the cause or do they hurt the cause by turning it into a freak show? Yeah, I would not say that those shows were ones that would be helpful to people living with obesity. They frequently show people in a very desperate position. They show them in a unhappy position. Um, they show their addictions in a very severe way, and it's a struggle. And it's oftentimes a private and a difficult struggle. And I do think that if they're, they're, those, those shows had a lot more than just a bariatric surgery, which is a very important thing to do, but also talked about the counseling and the psychological interventions and the use of medication, the whole gamut, then that would be an appropriate way of actually looking at it. It would be like saying, should we follow a bunch of people on TV for breast cancer um, or for pancreatic cancer surgery or colon cancer surgery. Why would we do that? So I don't see this as, as a, a, uh, an effective way of, of, of showcasing the relationship between a family doctor and, and a, a, um, a, a, um, a patient. So, Yeah, and, and I mean, I've always wondered how someone who was that size watching that show would respond to that, whether they would see it as a hopeful thing that, Hey, look, I can get down to, you know, a smaller size, or if they look and they see it as a hopeless thing. And, you know, as I say, kind of a freak show, but this, this, this issue is, it's pretty important now because of the numbers. I mean, in this country, we, uh, I mean, is it qualified as obesity that like the numbers in Canada have been going up and up and up of those who would qualify as or being called obese, correct? Correct. So we have almost 9 million people in Canada oh. right now that are in the quote unquote, oh, the, 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 the obesity range living, living with obesity, which is a BMI greater than greater than 30. Okay. And by your enhanced or different look at this, let's take the BMI out of it for a second. And by what right. your description is of, you can be very healthy as a larger person, instead of 9 million, what number would you expect? What percentage of those truly would be people who do you guess would be unhealthy? I would guess that probably in the range of 60% of those people would have some medical condition that is necessary to be treated, but maybe a good 40% wouldn't. Once you start to get over a BMI of 40, so we're into much heavier ranges, there's only about 5% of people that are in the healthy range. So 95% are dealing with a medical condition. So we know because we know that their weight is now just not in the peripheral areas. It's in the central areas also. It's everywhere. So it's going to cause a medical condition most of the time. So um, as you go down to the lower weights, but people are still in the at quote unquote elevated range, um, there's, there's, few, there's, um, uh, there's more and more healthy people within the, the um, group. But again, it's an individual thing. You do the blood work, you talk to the person, their psychological profile, their mechanical profile, everything matters and each person matters on an individual, hmm. individual level. Fascinating topic. Very interesting study. I really appreciate you taking some time to join us to explain it today. 
Absolutely. Take care. Thank you. That is Dr. Sean Wharton of the Wharton Medical Clinic and an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Um, yeah, go look it up. There are some stories about it online if you want to read more about the study and what it means and and particularly if if that may be something that is of concern to you or that would affect you, you may want to give it a little more of a read. Uh, very interesting stuff. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are going to talk about dinosaurs for a few minutes, but nobody that I know of in this story has been eaten by a dinosaur, which is a very positive turn. Uh, but there is, a, it's a fascinating story that we just learned about. There are scientists that have now discovered, they've done bone scans on a dinosaur bone and discovered osteosarcoma, bone cancer. The kind of bone cancer that in humans is usually found in teenagers and young adults. Uh, a little late for this particular dinosaur to benefit, but nonetheless, it is a fascinating thing and it raises some interesting questions. And the scientists who have done this, very excited about what they have found. Dr. Mark Crowther, who is the chair of the Department of Medicine, and Sether Ekviari is one of the co-authors of this. Join us now from McMaster. Gentlemen, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Uh, so help me out here for a minute. We, we know that we had this dinosaur bone before it was being scanned. Was it specifically being scanned to look for a cancer? Was there a reason to believe there was cancer in it? So we have reason to believe that it wasn't a fractured callus, which was how it was originally classified. But from there, we basically treated it the way that we would treat uh, any patient that comes in with, an, with a new tumor and we're not sure what it is, meaning you go in essentially with an open mind med uh, clinically, and you do all of your investigations in a stepwise manner, which in this case meant looking at the bone on the outside, documenting it very carefully, putting it into a high-resolution CT scanner, and then looking at it under a microscope and letting the findings guide the diagnosis. So we weren't specifically looking for osteosarcoma, but we, we had a feeling that it wasn't a fracture callus, and then we let the imaging and the microscope guide us from there. Why, okay, so why is this a big deal? I mean, most people wouldn't necessarily, including myself, understand why this would be a big breakthrough or why this would be so important. It's, a, it's, a, it's important for a couple of reasons. So the first is that, you know, cancer is something people think about being caused by smoking or by the environment or other things like this. And, and here we have what we are very sure is a case of an osteosarcoma, which is a cancer which exists in humans today in an animal that's about 70 million years old, showing us that, you know, cancer has been part of, just part of being an animal on the earth for tens of millions of years. Um, the second thing is it really helps to, you know, it opens up a new avenue for research into all kinds of different areas insofar as using the same kind of multidisciplinary team that we would use to diagnose and manage a, a human right now with this disease. We can use the same techniques to look at, at, at both fossils and other animals as well. So that's, that's really quite new to the whole field. One of the things about osteosarcoma is, of course, it's the Terry Fox tumor, so it has a particular yes. resonance for Canadians, and, and uh, it's very relevant and quite interesting that this dinosaur bone was discovered in Alberta quite some time ago, and up until now hadn't had a firm diagnosis affixed to it. And I, I was reading something that suggested that um, evolutionary biologists, evolutionary scientists have argued, many of them, that that this disease, that's the cancer, that sarcoma has evolved over the years, this would seem to suggest, as you just did, that maybe not. This has always been there. Yeah, so I think that's a great point. I think this shows us that cancer itself and at its core, you know, it's, it's baked into the biology of cells and 
the cell life cycle. And of course, it may manifest differently in different animals and through through time. Um, but I think, as you said, at least for osteosarcoma, this shows us that the cancer likely behaved very similarly and even looked very similar under the microscope even 75 million years ago. So what do we do with that knowledge now then? What... And again, I, I'm not being flippant. What difference does it make if the cancer existed 75 million years ago or only today? Does it change anything in how we study it, how we attack it, how we treat it, what we think of it? I think it, it, one thing it does is that, you know, that, again, there's a lot of suspicion that cancers are caused by things in our environment. And maybe there's a person, young person develops an osteosarcoma. They may think that maybe some exposure that they had or something they ate or, you know, the radiation or something caused this. And the fact that we found it in something that's this old indicates that you know, at least some of the cases, probably most of the cases are due essentially to bad luck and the biology of, of having rapidly growing bones that have nothing to do with anything that a, that a, that a, that a person did. I think more importantly, again, it just illustrates the, the point that uh, no one person on this paper could have made this diagnosis. It was a big team effort and it highlights that for this disease and other diseases, the advantage of bringing together teams of experts to um, really think hard about a, a, an issue which you might think is trivial, but in fact, I think you know, it obviously speaks quite strongly to, to the way that we diagnose and manage cancer in adults right now. Have we seen have we seen this in other dinosaur bones, or is this the first time we've seen it from this far back? So we, we've seen some other pathologies in dinosaur bones, such as gout, or, uh, some uh, joint diseases such as arthritis. We've also there have been um, some recent uh, suggestions of. Um, some benign tumors, which are basically tumors that don't spread to the rest of the body and, you know, most people probably wouldn't think about it as cancer. There hasn't been anything that's been confirmed to the level that we've confirmed. And the bar that we set for ourselves is basically the same bar that we would set for a human patient coming into clinic. And so without doing all of that, we would, in a patient, you'd never be able to say this is this type of cancer for sure. And so this level of um, diagnosis and confirmation has never been done before in a dinosaur specimen. One, one other interesting little, you know, dinosaurs are, are interesting. Kids love them. They've kind of got this mythic thing associated with them. Uh, and it is a break from COVID, which is great. Um, we have another. That is true. <laughs> yeah. We have another interesting pathology in that we have a, a case where a, a, of a dinosaur that essentially had tennis elbow, although we don't think it was actually from playing tennis. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you could find some golf elbow, that would be. Um, <laughs> no, but what is what would a uh, an osteosarcoma be made of? And the reason I ask that is because I'm wondering: is it possible that many dinosaurs had this, but the stuff that it's made of over time disappears? It just breaks down, and so the bones survive, but that the cancer itself is long gone before they're fossilized. Yeah, so it's very interesting that you point that out. Uh, osteosarcoma is is a basically a bone forming tumor meaning that it's caused by abnormal bone being formed at the site of the tumor. And that's actually probably one of the reasons that we were able to find this bone, uh, because as we know, bones preserve uh, better than most other tissues. And so, like you said, there may be other types of cancers, such as lung cancer, which we would never be able to find in a dinosaur because the lungs almost never get preserved um, unless in very specific situations, but typically soft tissues are not preserved. And so, that's one thing is that there are probably other types of cancer, non-bone cancers that we're missing. In terms of whether this is, whether there are more osteosarcomas out there in dinosaurs, I would say there probably would be, but the, the odds of any dinosaur being fossilized in the bright conditions and then being found and then it being identified correctly 
like Dr. Evans, our senior author on the paper says, it's like finding a needle in a haystack to begin with. So I think given that it was a bone cancer, it made it more likely to preserve, um, but it's still um, going to be something that's rare to find and hard to find. Well, uh, yeah, because I would assume, and again, I mean, I, 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 none of us were there to know this, but if you're a dinosaur that is struggling with this, you're probably going to be affected in how you move and everything else. And, you know, n- not to get all Jurassic Parky and everything, but that would possibly limit your mobility and you may not have survived all that long to leave a skeleton that could be fossilized. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's actually a great point. It's actually an interesting thing. So, the, the finding of this bone actually speaks to a lot of the way that this dinosaur actually lived. So this dinosaur we know for sure didn't die from the cancer. This dinosaur died in a large herd of similar animals, probably in a flood um, that occurred. And so you see images of you know herd animals crossing rivers in Africa now, and many of them die, and their bodies all accumulate in a big pile. That's what happened to this animal. So this animal was found inside of a big pile of other animals, which tells us a lot because this animal would have been very severely hobbled by this and, and would have been easy prey for any of the, the big meat-eating dinosaurs that lived around the same time. There were two big meat-eating dinosaurs in the same environment. And it survived and died with its, with its other partners in, in this herd, suggesting that it had you know, some protection from the herd and, and probably that the herd was, you know, as best as dinosaurs can, at least looking out for this creature a little bit. Uh, and trying to protect it, and it unfortunately died due to a natural disaster, not as a result of the tumor. It's a fascinating story. Uh, people can read about this. They can go online. It's uh, it's worth a read. Uh, Sepper Ekviari and Mark Crowther, who were uh, part of this study. Thanks, guys, for doing this. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks very much for your time. Thanks for having us. Uh, yeah, again, McMaster doctors. Uh, guys, McMaster doctors. Well, <laughs> let's let's not take a... They've worked hard for the doctor. Let's Let's go with that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Loyal, brave, and true. It is my duty to protect my family. Ancestors, please protect her. What is your name, soldier? Hua Jun, commander, son of Hua Zhou. We're going to make men out of every single one of you. That is a clip from the trailer for the new Mulan movie that's coming out. Not to be confused, as I did, with Mulan Rouge. Very different movie. <laughs> don't, don't get those two confused. Uh, anyway, Mulan, Disney, uh, which makes this movie, it's the live-action version, is now going to bring Mulan to you. Not in theaters, because, well, that's not easy to do these days on your streaming service and we'll charge you an extra premium for this. Let's bring in Bill Briou of Briou TV. Great TV writer. Bill, thanks for doing this today. Hey, my pleasure, Scott. Uh, We can't be in any way surprised that when theaters are not open and theme parks are closed and everything else, that the people who bring you entertainment are looking for new revenue streams, can we? No, and we should never be surprised if it's Disney. I think, you know, I mean, and to be fair to them, you know, this uh, COVID pandemic has just murdered them. Uh, you know, their theme parks were closed for three or four months. Uh, they're back open, but who's going? Uh, all their theatrical, they were riding so high. In the last few years, they were by far the number one box office king. Um, you know, I think Disney films made more money than all the other studios combined in 2019. Uh, so, 
Yeah, they've taken it on the chin. They've spent $200 million on this new blockbuster live-action version of Mulan, and they can't show it anywhere, so they're trying to find another way. Yeah, and Disney, by the way, their earnings came out for the first quarter, and they had dropped a billion dollars. Didn't lose a billion, but they had dropped a billion dollars in revenue. So, yeah, uh, you can see why they're going to do this. But they on Disney Plus apparently are now going to be offering this live-action Mulan. Don't go to the theaters. You own it. $29. $29. That, boy, Bill, I mean, look, even if you love Mulan, that's a lot of money. I guess it's the, you know, if you have a family that's all sitting there, it's the equivalent of going to the theater for your ticket prices. But 29 bucks is a lot. Yeah, and I can't see a big clamoring to see it. I mean, now, my children are grown uh, adults, so it's too long. I mean, uh, they were into The Lion King when they were little kids, and I remember having to take them 15 times to see that, or Aladdin, or Beauty and the Beast. Um, But uh, there's so many options now in terms of children's entertainment, including Disney+, Plus, which has 60 million subscribers. That's that's an enormous runaway hit. So as much as they lost a billion, boy, it would have been maybe two billion if it wasn't for the, the successful launch there. So you've had all these other things, all these other movies to look at and watch. I'm, I'm wondering whether youngsters will really be clamoring to see a live action Mulan. Well, and that's not even, I I would argue it's not even one of their superstar hits. Like, as you say, it's not the remake of the Lion King or something where you might have been able to, but nonetheless, if if this works even a little bit, we'll start seeing imitators across the board. Won't we? Netflix will start coming up with a new second premium package where you can get movies out early or something. I mean, if this works, everybody's going to try and follow suit. Absolutely, yes. And, um, I mean, everybody's struggling to figure this out. And there's a lot of movies being released. Uh, Seth Rogen has a movie tomorrow that's on Netflix, I think, um, that, uh, you know, was supposed to go into theaters uh, where he falls into a brine and becomes a living pickle. And <laughs> sounds crazy. <laughs> but, you know, so all these people, Tom Hanks had a big budget war movie uh, that went straight to, I think, Amazon. And I yeah, think. Greyhound. Yes, and it was, I think that the um, streaming service, I think, paid Warner Brothers, whoever made the film, uh, and I may have my facts wrong, but a lot of money, $40 million, something like that, to just buy it outright and show it on their service. So, yeah, people are trying to cover their losses, do whatever they can. Right now, if they have content that's sitting on a shelf dying, they're trying to judge, how long can we wait for the theaters to open, or do we make a fast buck now? And I'm not even convinced, Bill, that if it doesn't work, if this Mulan idea crashes, I'm not convinced though that we don't see it anyway, because they may just say, well, it was just Mulan. It was just the wrong vehicle for this, but we can still create this second level of superior premium thing and get people to pay extra. I, I, I will be shocked if within a year, Netflix doesn't have some sort of secondary level thing that you can get stuff earlier. Yeah, I mean, all of these, there's lots and lots. Every week, there are movies that were supposed to be in theaters that you can buy now and watch through some service or another and uh, watch at home. Uh, Disney is going to a lot of trouble to set up a pay-per-view. It's not unlike what you would do if you wanted to see a big uh, boxing match, you know, HBO or different services. You could do, you could see Floyd Mer- Merriweather, and they would make millions and millions of dollars that way. And I think Disney thinks, well, works in boxing, let's try it with theatrical. And you're right, if Mulan doesn't work, Disney has five more movies, some of them Marvel superhero movies, and you can bet they're going to try again and again. 
Yeah. They'll work. I, I wish we had a lot more time, Bill. One more thing though. There, it's not been that long that a lot of people decided that they were going to cut the cord because they were going to save money on their cable bills. And I'll stream a little bit. I'll get a service. I'll get Netflix. I'll get Hulu. I'll get Crave, whatever. Well, is am I wrong or does it seem like we've now reached the point where for a lot of people, they're spending every bit as much or more on the streaming services that they did once upon a time on cable? Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a wash, Scott. I mean, if you still have Netflix, it's, what, 14 bucks a month. Uh, you know, if you've got um, Disney maybe 12 if you've got uh if you've got three of these things you're sort of paying what you used to pay what whatever your cable bill was uh i think we're seeing more and more people go out there and try and find a roku or a, a set top box something that will give them a discount uh, or other ways to stream things that are at a at a cost at a good value so everybody's trying to figure it out uh certainly though the cable companies and satellite people are taking it on the chin as more and more people cut the cord. Wish we had more time. Bill Briou from Briou TV. Always appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.